Hi, and thanks for reaching back to one of the earlier episodes of the Bike Karma Bicycle Podcast. I'm immensely proud of these stories and the people who shared them with me. But having said all that, I've learned a lot about editing, recording, and production over the last few years. Hopefully you'll enjoy listening to the evolution of the show as much as I have. Welcome to episode one of Bike Karma, stories about living with people and bicycles. In this episode, we'll be talking about touring with Frank Obelnicki. Frankie and I went across the UK together along with uh, Andy Obelnicki. We did the end-to-end tour, which is from the top of Scotland to the bottom of England, from John O'Groats to Land's End. It was my lifelong dream tour, but Frankie has also toured extensively across the United States and California and all kinds of places. He's going to talk to us about his experiences with touring, and we'll also talk about people yelling at you while you're on the bike. Just get you ready for that. And one of my favorite pieces of kit, today on Bike Karma. Karma is about all those things that tie people together, every type of rider. So uh, just be prepared for this. You're going to get yelled at while you're out there. It started when I started running years ago. People would just honk at you and yell at you as you were running on the side of the road. And even in my younger days, I got a few cat calls, which I didn't mind so much. Um, but now I'm older and I'm biking, I still get yelled at all the time. So don't be surprised when you get yelled at. On the bike, I get yelled at, I get things like, faster, move over. And sometimes somebody will come by and go like, let's, 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 let's. And then, uh, you know, they even still do the ones from like my running days. Like they'll go like, run forest, run, I'm on a bike. I'm, I'm on a bike and they're saying run forest, run. Sometimes cars pull up alongside you while you're pedaling and you're both moving and they say, you know, do you know how to get to this place? And you're like, the driver's looking at you as well as the passenger, so you know that they're not paying attention to not hitting you. They're just, you know, and you're kind of in the zone, or trying to be. Uh, so that's pretty dangerous. You just say, go straight, and they, and they leave. A lot of times people are drunk and stoned and all kinds of other stuff. Maybe just high on life, I don't know. A sedan full of stoners <laughs> the other day, one guy hanging out the window goes, Peace, man! Peace, baby! And I'm like, alright, yeah, thanks. And periodically they're mean, so be ready for that too. Drunk guy pulls up on side of you, tells you, you should be riding on the sidewalk. It's where you belong, and it's, it's not true. And, you know, he doesn't know the traffic laws that say, you know, don't, don't ride on the sidewalk unless you're a little kid. And he also doesn't know how many Coors Lights it takes to get him tipsy. So, I have had students 
recognize me and shout out my name when they are coming up behind me at like 40 miles an hour. I'm in my kit, which I don't normally wear in class. I'm doing like 18 miles an hour. I'm on a bike and they still go, Mr. Brown. And it's like, how did you even recognize me? You know, I've got sunglasses on. I'm on a bike. You're driving in a car. I, I guess I'm really identifiable. Some drivers think they're being helpful and they give you a big blast of the horn. They go, as they go by and you, they have no idea that the horn is so much louder if you're outside the car and it usually just scares the hell out of somebody. I've seen I've seen cyclists actually fall down when somebody goes by and gives them one of those little courtesy blasts. I don't know where that came from. It might be from the 50s. I don't know when there were less cyclists going out on the road particularly. Don't, don't. If you're a driver, don't give a courtesy blast unless you think the person's gonna swerve into you. My wife, every time I have a close call, my wife asks, was it an older gentleman in a baseball cap? She has this theory that older gentlemen in baseball caps are, are very dangerous, and it was true. It, the one time this guy was a very nice guy, you know, he's in a baseball cap, an older gentleman, and he's in a car, and he pulls up, and we're stopped, waiting to merge with traffic, and he comes to a complete stop on like a 40 mile an hour road, and he smiles, and he waves us in uh, like he's doing us a a favor and I'm looking behind him and there's an 18-wheeler the, the guy's face is in terror behind him as he slams on the brakes and the, the tractor trailer is squealing behind him and this this guy is just smiling and waving us in and we're just like oh my god what do we do you know do we break the law and take his advice and go out there so that he'll hopefully move and not get rear-ended by a tractor trailer or do we just turn around and, and flee in the opposite direction it's it was a tough call I forget what we did. The good news is all those people above, they actually see you. And that's good, because that means that unless they're homicidal, they're not going to purposely go at you. The, the bad part is when they don't see you. So as bad as it is for people to come up behind you and yell at you and do all kinds of stuff, they, they see you and they're, they're probably not going to hit you. But I, I've taken to teaching my children doing like a profiling. I know stereotypes are bad and all this, but, but honestly, people who drive Mercedes almost never stop at stop signs. And, and I know that there's one or two out there who's going to be like, no, I do. Okay, you do. Look at all the other people driving Mercedes because I, as a sick game, I just, I just would start keeping track and, and honestly they don't. It's like as I come up to an intersection I see a Mercedes at one of the one of the coming up towards me I just I, I cringe my shoulders tense up and I just look to see what it's going to do and usually just you know slows down slightly and blasts through uh, oftentimes while the person is you know looking up and and uh, trying to adjust their Bluetooth. So as a cyclist I am extremely scared of Mercedes. When they come up to a four-way stop they do stop somewhat and then they're always the first person to go so if you're already stopped at four-way stop and a Mercedes comes up just know that they trump all the rules of who goes next I kind of look like like at Mercedes the way that chickens look at hawks I just get oh no not, a, not one of those so anyway watch out for Mercedes okay I mean maybe they think that the you know how some cars can back up automatically and stuff like that maybe they think that there's some automatic thing that pushes other cars and cyclists off to the side and pedestrians, some type of high-tech like arm that comes out of their car and just 
keeps them safe, I don't know. So beware European luxury cars, young cyclist. Sometimes people throw stuff at you and they think it's really clever. I haven't been hit with anything hard, you know, like sometimes a can will come out and go to the side of you. It's usually just to like connect with you, I guess. I mean, I'm gonna go with the, I'm gonna go with the positive thing that they're just trying to connect with you. Hey! There's a can. Okay, thanks. Thank you. In this, I was reading a book from the 70s, and it was worse back then. The book actually, I forget which one it was, but the book actually warned women cyclists about getting their their uh, bottoms slapped or fondled as cars rode up behind them. I, I kid you not. And I, that has not happened to me yet, but I'm thinking maybe when it does, it's probably more likely to be the stoner in the sedan that to be the person driving the Mercedes, but anyway. So, be safe out there, and uh, just keep in mind that you're not the only one being yelled at. You know, watch your back, literally. Okay, so I'm here with Frank Obelniki. Frankie. Hey, Tom. Affectionately known as Freak. Yeah, big Freak. Just before we go, uh, Frankie has agreed to let me use his voice and his identity <laughs> in internet chat rooms and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Great. Um, so anyway, what you have done long bike rides with me. Yeah. You've done long bike rides by yourself. Yes. What is the lure of that? What makes you want to get on a bike and go across country by yourself? The lure is there's a lot of there's a lot of things. There's a lot of reasons why I like doing it. One of the simplest reasons is how simple it makes your life. Like so you you wake up and you know exactly what you're going to be doing that day and you do it. You wake up and you bicycle and then you eat and then you go to sleep. And it's just, it's really, I mean, there's zero complication in that, you know, that's... In your head, are you worrying about where you're going to get to that night, or... Sometimes. Where you're going to eat? Sometimes. Usually, I mean, if I've got a, if I have enough Pop-Tarts and peanut butter and jelly and bread, then there's not, you know, there's not a lot of worries as far as food, and, you know, I, and the last couple of, my big bike ride, my, most of my big bike rides I've had a tent with me, so... There's not a whole lot of worry as to where to stop. It's more of when to stop and making sure that you get set up before the, the sun goes down. So it's freedom or the exploring? The exploring, I mean, is a big part too. And, and I think that there is no better way to travel than by bike. You know, you, you miss so much. Well, you miss everything if you, f if you fly, mm -hmm. except topography. You miss most things if you drive, because you're usually on a highway, and if you're not on a highway, you're still going like, even if you're going like 40 miles an hour, the best a brain can do is keep the car on the road, and if you do much more than that, you're, you know, you're going to start killing people. And, and even on a bike, I mean, I felt like <laughs> pulled to so many things that we saw along the way yeah. on our trip that I was like, I wouldn't even have known to have missed them. Right. Had I been in a car, you you wouldn't. You'd have no. I mean, you would never, you would never see them. You would just it, you would just go by, and yeah, you just never you would just never see them. So you go from insulated 
to like overload yeah. on the bike. So how do you yeah. how do you pare down? Where do you stop? When is something so good that you're gonna stop your groove and check it out? <laughs> well, it depends. So a lot of that depends on. So like when we bike together, there was the three of us, which made it a a little bit more difficult. Plus we had a, a scheduled. Yeah. You know, we had the scheduled ride, so that, you know. There was some comfort in the organization, but at the same time, it kind yeah. of destroyed any spontaneity. Right. So in a situation like that, you know, first we would all basically have to agree to stop, or we would get split up, like we did a couple of times. Um, so, like, in that case, like, I remember I stopped to see that the big castle on Loch Ness. Yep. Because that was like I was like, well, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm here yep. already. Yep. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna stop. Uh, regard, you know, regardless of what happens, I'm stopping here to see this once in a lifetime thing. Well, maybe twice in a lifetime. But when am I going back to Loch Ness? I have no plans to go back. So uh, I've but left he, it open. Yeah, you leave it open. Well, of course, <laughs> you always want to assume that you'll go back someplace. When you're biking by yourself, it's a little bit more up in the air. As long as you don't have to get someplace anytime fast, you know, usually big stops, I'll look ahead. I'll be like, oh, there's, like, I, I made sure to stop in Memphis to see Graceland. Nice. Because, <laughs> you know, it's Graceland. When are you going to see Graceland? Um... You know, so big things like that, you sort of know ahead of time. But there are random stuff. Like, I remember I stopped somewhere in Galveston, Texas, at a, uh, what's the thing where you hit balls and they're thrown repeatedly at you by a machine? Batting cage. Batting cage. That's the thing. Yeah. So I stopped at a batting cage in Gal Galveston, Texas, because I was like, oh, it's been a while since I've done that. I was like, well, I'm going to stop. I'm going to hit some baseballs. You're there already. I'm there already. Because, you know, I mean, like, if you if you can't stop and do things because, I mean, what? I, what's the point? What's the point? What's the, Where's the pressure moving you forward? You know, if there's too much pressure moving you forward, then I think you're doing the bike, the tour wrong. All right, so, so when we were going across, you know, the UK together, the, the big things for me were, uh, one, just wanting to stop and see everything just because I was on overload this is this is like my dream place to explore yeah and and I think that we all come from different places but this the second thing for me was never having done something so physically demanding with other people and what I realized it took me a while to realize is that part of the reason why people would start getting grumpy is because you're not it's not like you're going for a leisurely jaunt around uh, the square and you decide what shops to stop at. Right. You're going on this huge thing where it's like everybody is kind of after the first couple of days, they're really, I mean, maybe not for you. I know you were in much better condition than, than Andy and I, but it was but you're like tired. you're tired and you're really pushing yourself on some of those hills and in some of those environments, like with the wind blowing and stuff like that. And you really, you can't, make allowances for other people's stuff you know and yeah. so it's all of a sudden it's like this flexibility of letting go that you know like oh you know I, I'm with a group here and we're we're kind of like a loose group we're like an amoeba you know with three little right. pseudopods coming off right, of it right. that that was the big epiphany for me was not only going to my dream place to ride but but learning how to ride with people 
Well, yeah, I mean, usually people come together to relax. Yeah. Or, I mean, you know, there's there's difference. Like, you have a group that you ride with, but it's a little different because you get together, maybe you probably chat a little bit before you start, you yeah. chat a little bit after you're done, but then you go home and you get rested. Whereas, you know, when you're on a bike tour, you're with people while they're getting rested. And yeah. sometimes you don't get rested. And then, you know, that's... It de it's definitely a different dynamic than a lot of, you know, social interactions that you'll ever have. How far, how far would... I mean, we went between 50 and 80, I'm guessing maybe 90 miles once Might, when yeah. we took a wrong turn. Right. But, you know, on barely sketchy surface roads, that not what what kind of distances would you go going across the country by yourself? When I when uh so that's tricky. I started like my first three days. I think I did thirty miles or forty miles because I did I was in terrible shape. But I would say I was usually aiming to do between seventy and eighty miles a day, and it was not unusual for me to do hundred. And the the most I ever did. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It was my last day. I rode into New Orleans, and I was trying to get there for Halloween. That week, that whole week riding into New Orleans, I was doing 125, 100, 130, 100, 100. I mean, it was it was huge. And then the last day, I think I did 158 or something. Yeah, I'd Did have you to. Feel it afterwards. Oh my god, I went. So I met up with a friend. I rode directly into New Orleans, right to the bar, and, <laughs> and so like, I was so so tired. I was just I was spinning, and and you know they bought me a drink, and it went directly to my head. You know, in only the way that it that alcohol can when you've just been totally exhausted. And that was, I think, that was definitely the longest I've ever ridden. And I'm pretty sure it was 158 or 159 miles. Yeah, I wanted to do 101 last week just to see what it felt like. Yeah. And to say I've done 100 miles in a day to, to see what that is like, you know. And I didn't do the massive hills that we had to go out with, you know, 20% slopes and stuff like that. Yeah, well, you you're Climbing being... <laughs> out of town on every single ride. It'd be hard to press to find that anywhere but England. Yeah, everybody says numbers are artificial, numbers are fake and whatnot, but like a hundred, there's always going to be somebody who says, oh, you know, I, I can do that standing on my head, but I think a hundred miles is really like a, you don't want to do much more than that touring if you're going to do it long term. I mean, unless yeah, you definitely. have to. Right. Yeah, unless there's some reason to, I think, honestly, I think, well, so, so depending on where you're touring, I think that, you know, your golden mileage changes. Like, England, if, if, if I did England again, with or without anyone, I think I wouldn't want to do much more than 50 miles a day. I'm going to give you a high five on that. Yeah. Because, <laughs> there's well, there's just too much to do in England. There's there's something around every corner yeah, around pulling at you and saying every that's day. the neatest thing. There's a neat pub yeah. with people waving at you already. Yeah. Like, they're going to be your friends instantly if you Super just pull nice in there people. and have yeah. a pint. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's just, I mean, maybe, all right, Scotland, maybe you want to go a little further because things are a little bit further apart, but I think probably 50 miles there would probably be right, too. It's just too, it's just too interesting. When you go across, like, the western states of the United States, 
then you might want to do 100 miles because yeah. the only thing you're going to see is the skies and the mountains and and there's a lot of flat places too where you can get some some miles in there are there are yeah if you pick your if you pick your route right you can you can hit a, days of flat anyway but yeah yeah so maybe like if you're doing that 100 miles is not totally unreasonable all right so what was your favorite place to ride your bike through that's that's hard give me, give me a top couple i mean <laughs> dude <laughs> it's tough have you ever seen the montage in in Forrest Gump where he's talking about yeah. the places that he yeah. runs. It's like it's like that. There's just the, there are so many amazing places to ride through. So so amazingly beautiful. Like West Texas. People talk about West Texas all the time. And rightfully so in some cases, but it is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful country. And you know, there's this I forget, I think it was like State Road 80 or 90 or something. And you'd be riding on that. You wouldn't see a car go by you for an hour, two hours maybe. It's just, it's empty. And it was amazing. I mean, it was just, it was beautiful. Or, but then, you know, then there's uh, Highway 1 in California. You know, the the coastal road. Especially near Big Sur. Hilly. Very difficult. But gorgeous. Like when I went when I went by there this last time, it was there was like a, a fog rolling in over the ocean, and I kept going in and out of it as I was going up and down these mountains. At the end of the day, it was just I mean it was unreal. England, England and Scotland, Cheddar Gorge, Cheddar Gorge, beautiful. With the sheep wandering out from in these gigantic what, rock sculptures, it was it's still like a dream. It, it is. really is. And what's the deal with cheddar closing at five? That's ridiculous. That was messed up. That's a that's a if you have a tourist industry named after cheese, you got to be open till at least like six. Or cheese named after your town, I should say. Cheese you should be open. I think so. That was disappointing. But yeah, there's just too many. There's not a favorite place. There's just too many. I mean, Arizona, New Mexico. The hills there that I went over were just amazing. Mountains? I guess maybe they're mountains? It's hard to say. I guess it's the Rockies, like the bottom of the Rockies. Yeah. I think so. So, one thing that I get from, like, widening my perspective of, of touring, and, you know, I haven't done any major tours since last year. I mean, I've done a lot of touring, but I find that when it starts to rain, <laughs> I laugh to myself. Like, I was literally laughing in a downpour. Yeah. And just going to myself, this is nothing. I've been to Scotland, baby. Yeah. <laughs> what what kind of things have you gotten from the place? What kind of confidences have you gotten from places like that? Like, obviously, the rain and the weather in Scotland makes me feel a lot more confident about doing any rain that I would face in New England. Yeah. Well... Like anything about being solitary, where 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 do you get your strength from being, you know, if I can handle here, I can handle being alone on the road anywhere. Where was that? Oh, that that was definitely West Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the yeah, the 
isolation was intense. It was intense. There were some times when I started, like, I generally was not worried on that trip, but there were some times when I would forget how far, you know, away things were, or I would think, oh, I can go one more town. But one more town is, like, 40 miles at least, or more, like 60 miles. I mean, like... <laughs> like a full day. Like a full day. <laughs> and you go buy it, and you're like, you know, that it's over. <laughs> you're, riding into, you're riding into the dark, like, for sure. And so there would be... I would say that, you know, for solid, for strength from being solitary you know that's that's the place it was ridiculous i mean luckily they've got these great um like pullouts these parking things uh all over all over west texas and they're it's picnic tables with roofs and i have got this the hammock tent right and the the poles that hold the roof up over these picnic tables, it's not like a, uh, an extravagant route, is they were just wide enough for me to string the hammock up. So thank God for that, because otherwise I would have been screwed a number of times. Did it water there? No water. No water. Uh, which also was got a little bit scary, but, you know, I would it usually... It seems to be the one big thing to worry about no matter where you go, is... Water. Are you going to have enough liquids... Yeah. yeah. Have you ever had to do from a stream? No, I've never, I've never had to drink out of a stream. But I would carry, like when I was in, when I knew that it was going to be long days, I would have a, a lot of water. I would carry with me at least, at least a gallon, and I, I think when I was, way out in, the middle, are we allowed to swim? Is that a thing? I could bleed you out later. Well, anyway, I, when I was out in the middle of nowhere, there's the, um, I think, I'm pretty sure I had a gallon and a half, which worked out to be nine bottles worth, I think. So each half gallon would fill all of, all three of the bottles that would fit on my bike, and I'd have two half gallon jugs on the back, and I'd have all three bottles full. So when I was out in the middle of nowhere, I had, I was, you know, I was not messing around water. But yes, I was worried. I mean, that's why I was carrying a gallon and a half of water. I was terrified of running out of water. I look back on my first tour, I gotta be a little bit forgiving of myself and be like not too hard on myself because that's the guy I was at the time, you know, and, but my big rookie mistake obviously is one that's very common is to bring just too much stuff. Oh yeah. The weight of everything I brought. I was just, I, I, I would, I thought that it was just so foolish to worry about a couple pounds, but yeah. over a thousand miles, that really does, miles, you know, yeah. like the weight weenies with riding racing cycles, you know, it's like, yeah, you could, you could be up or down two pounds in a day, so it really doesn't matter that much for like a single race, but for a huge excursion where you're hauling that around, it's just like this mathematical formula that makes it that two pounds is now multiplied so much so I would travel a lot lighter than I did the first time what was your Absolutely. what was your big rookie mistake well my my big rookie mistake the let's see the first tour I did I was like 19 and I was I bought a bike in 
Germany and rode it around Germany and Austria. And I was, uh, I hadn't done any biking. I hadn't, like, I had in no way prepared for it. I was just like, a Euro rail pass costs like $2,000. I could buy a bike and have a whole trip for that price or something, you know, so, so that's what I, I did. I would say my big rookie mistake was make sure you have protective eyewear. <laughs> <laughs> it was huge. It's not just a style. It's to it's, keep crap it's out of your really eyes. really not a style. <laughs> like, it is hugely, hugely important. Uh, maybe make sure that you have a bike that fits. Oh, maybe God. have some gloves. Yeah, your bike did not fit. My bike, it wasn't fit to me anyway. I later got it fit to me better. It was just, I don't know. I, I will say I made a lot of mistakes, but that was one of the... It was one of the greatest experiences of my life, and I've been kicking myself for not having done it, for not having toured again. I, there was like 10 years in between my first tour and my next tour. Hey, thank you, Frank. You're welcome. So you just got a bike. Maybe it's another bike, the first bike you got in a few years. You spent a lot of money on it, but you love it, and you're ready to take it out. And as you're trying to ring it out at the store, depending on the shop, they're trying to push you into all this other stuff that you need. You don't need it all right away, um, and a good shop will tell you that. But you can do it all in regular clothes and a helmet. But after a while, you might find it nice to get some things. They're just nice. It's just like having these little accoutrements that help you along the way. So like, you know, gloves are great. Padded gloves, uh, padded cycling shorts. And my favorite item of kit, kit is basically saying like the outfit you wear while you're cycling. My favorite part of kit is the jersey. The jerseys can be beautiful. They can be inspiring. You put them on, you feel great and you feel like you want to get out there and ride. But the most important thing about the jerseys is how helpful they are. Jerseys have, like real bike jerseys, have three back pockets. And these back pockets are almost magical because they can hold a water bottle, they can hold a tube, they can hold a huge amount of stuff. You know, they're really easy to get stuff in and out of these pockets as you ride in. So you got your cell phone in there, you got your wallet and all this other stuff. So. Once you realize how helpful they are, you probably want to get a cycling jersey. And that's when the attack on your self-esteem will begin. A lot of us get into riding to stay fit and to uh, feel better about ourselves and to exercise and to keep the calories off and all that stuff. And when you go to buy a cycling jersey, you will be assaulted by the sizing of jerseys. The sizing of jerseys is extremely humbling. So let's say you, you know, you're a size large, and uh, lately you forayed into the extra large section to because the larges are getting a little tight, and then you go to get yourself back into shape, and you go to buy a cycling jersey, and the size that you now need is a extra 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 extra. I kid you not, a four X large or a 3x large if they're generous and you are devastated it's like saying you a huge 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 person you need gigantic clothes to fit you 
So anyway, the reason for the craziness is, is that, you know, like so many other things, the cycling clothing business is driven by racing and racers have great bodies and they don't mind showing them off like superheroes and they want them to be skin tight, close to the skin as possible, uh, makes them more aerodynamic, makes them more smooth, blah, blah, blah. And they they don't have love handles they don't have a beer belly they don't have a muffin top going uh, they are they are the elite and the whole cycling industry just takes that whole cut that that clings to them and says okay that's their size and then it extrapolates and so you've got these little perfectly formed riders who are driving the the sizing chart and uh, there's two different types of cuts. Unfortunately, they don't mean anything. The club cut versus the race cut. Now, in another time, it would be like loose-fitting jeans versus slim jeans. But in reality, they're so often mislabeled and so often not labeled at all. The club cut is more of a slightly generous ride. The race cut is more tight-clinging, if you could believe it. So anyway, you go to order one, and if you order online, there's just it's just a gamble. You, you have no idea whether or not that thing's going to fit you when it shows up or not. Even with measurements, if you measure, two of the measurements that they do is the pit-to-pit. And the pit-to-pit can be the same as another favorite cycling jersey you have, but then it gets so slim near the bottom that it, it fits you at your armpits, and then it doesn't fit you around your belly. And then the back, how far down the back it goes. So cycling jerseys tend to be longer in the back so that you don't show your the, the plumber type of thing. And uh, so how do you get a cycling jersey? Well, number one, be aware that crazy as it seems, so like, you know, you're going to go at least, if you're a normal person who does not want it skin tight, if you're a racer, you know, obviously you know a little bit more about what you're doing, you're going to want it skin tight, but if you're a normal person, just like slightly loose, you're going to go up two to three sizes over your street size. And it all depends on where it's made. If it's imported from China, for some reason the Chinese sizing tends to run smaller, so you'd even have to go another size up. It's nothing against China, it's just that their sizing tends to run even smaller. So how do you get one that fits? Well, if you go and you measure your favorite shirt, and you measure from pit to pit, you have, and then you measure down the back, and you want to add some inches to that. You, you might go to a bike store if they have a good selection of them. It's, it's luck. It's basically down to luck, and you increase your chances of luck like the lottery. It's it's by getting a couple of them, and hopefully one of them will fit. But on eBay, which is where I get most of my cycling jerseys from, there's another problem, which is that the the older ones, which tend to be U.S. sizing, which which is a little bit more generous on the size side, they are ugly. I mean, just just some of the ugliest things you've ever seen. They got the three pockets and you just wish that they they were just black or something and they've got some picture of butterflies or a cactus or a dog and, and then sometimes it's it's a butterfly, a cactus and a dog all together on the same jersey and you're like, what why why would somebody do that? And there's there's why a cycling clothes so ugly is that so that people can see you while you're on the bike but there's no need for it to be that bad looking you can have a nice looking bright jersey and not these ugly things so 
uh, there are some ugly cycling jerseys and unfortunately that might be the one that ends up being your fit but d don't buy it because you won't you won't feel good you got to wait for that rare thing that's a cycling jersey that fits you that actually looks really nice and it's going to take a little while to get your favorite so anyway why beware the ugly cycling jerseys it's enough to push some people just right over the edge where they never take it to the next level because they try on jersey that's two sizes larger than their street clothes size and it fits like a sausage casing and it really makes them feel horrible it's the most unflattering piece of garb that they've ever put on don't be discouraged once you find that perfect cycling jersey it will make you look and feel good it's a good thing to have a cycling jersey it's a bad thing to buy one so so for john words it's out there somewhere you'll find it You'll find it, just keep looking. Good luck. Okay, finally done. The first episode of Bike Karma. If you want to give me feedback on the episode, please contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. You can also get to me through our Facebook page at Bicycle Karma on Facebook. And you can get this and future episodes on the Podbeam website. So apart from the background music, I would like to thank Mobjack for letting us use their excellent songs for our title sequence and our end. And they have great music. You should go check them out at mobjackmusic.com. They fairly rock. They are a really great band. Give them a listen to. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to Frankie Obelnicki for being my interviewee. And hope to see you in future episodes. Do you have a story you'd like to share on Bike Karma? Please contact me through the website. I'm especially looking for stories about bicycle shop experiences and stuff that you found on the side of the road. Till next time, keep it wheel. Take care. Bicycle Karma and Bike Karma are written by Tom Brown, all rights reserved. 